Welcome to the Gauteng Wholesale and Retail Seater Leadership Chairs podcast. Hosted at the University of Johannesburg's Department of Marketing Management, we have conversations with wholesalers, retailers, and industry experts from South Africa and around the world. We also speak with renowned researchers so that we can provide you with information that promotes excellence and advances the retail industry. Wonderful good day to our listeners from your host. I'm Dr. Beate Stieder Mulder, the leadership chair for the wholesale and retail theater Hartink, hosted at the University of Johannesburg. Today's conversation is really just that. It's a conversation about everything in retail, from discussing the retailer's COVID perspective, all about working in and a career in retail, retail strategy, and what retailers should potentially be doing to succeed in the future. Our guest in studio is Mr. John Bradshaw. John studied business science at the University of Cape Town and then politics, philosophy, and economics at Oxford University. He worked as a strategy consultant in the UK, South Africa, and India before returning to Cape Town to join Pick and Pay. In his time at Pick and Pay, he worked in strategy, consumer insights, and loyalty before heading up marketing from 2017 to 2021. He then headed up Omnichannel from March 2021 to May 2021, responsible for e-commerce, financial services, and other value-added services. So, John, it's really fantastic to have you um, in studio today. And with that, I would like to say a very warm welcome. Well, thank you very much, Beata. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me on. Great. Uh, John, I would like to start by um, asking you about your career journey. Um, From what you initially kind of studied and then working across the globe and then joining Pick and Pay in South Africa. Can you tell us, give us a bit of background about your experiences and your journeys? Yeah, well, I uh, grew up in Cape Town, studied at UCT, really enjoyed it and always had had a dream of going and studying overseas at Oxford University. So managed to find the back door uh, to study there through sport. And and after I'd uh, completed my studies there, uh, had the opportunity to go into strategy consulting. And for somebody who didn't know what they wanted to do, it was just a fantastic way to be exposed to a lot of different things. So like you mentioned, I had the chance to work a lot in in the UK, had the chance to spend seven months working in in India, which was incredible, and some time in South Africa, which I obviously knew quite well, but just a really challenging way in teaching me how to think differently, teaching me how to work in a team well, uh, and really stretching me and, and growing me. And then at the end of that, I had a, a decision point to make. Uh, strategy was going really well. Uh, but I was interested in working out, could I get closer to the impact? One of the frustrations about working in strategy is uh, the no matter how hard you push towards results, there's always going to be somebody else that actually does the implementation. So I was curious to see, could I get closer to that? And I was excited about the adventure in South Africa. And so my family and myself, we moved back to Cape Town and I thought I was going to do something entrepreneurial. Uh, and uh, I decided to, I had a young kid and decided to start off at pick and pay. I had worked on the, with the strategy team there before, so I knew the head of strategy. And so I took a short-term contract uh, with pick and pay, and I discovered that I absolutely loved grocery retail, much to the amusement of uh, my family. And I became a retail nerd from that point. And that's, that's been uh, my 12 years uh, at pick and pay, which has really been an incredibly fulfilling and, uh, and challenging period. Fantastic. Yeah, there seems to definitely be a perception. The other day when I was uh, talking to uh, Tembi Mazabuko, she was also on the uh, podcast, and uh, we just discussed that when you had a bra and you say, oh, I work in retail, people are kind of like, 
what? <laughs> you work in retail? <laughs> so they, they immediately think you must, you work as a cashier or you, then that's the perception out there. So um, with that kind of image in retail, how can we really motivate people and make them understand, you know, what a career in retail is about? Yeah, it's funny. When I uh, used to interview people for for roles on my team, I always used to warn them, if you get this role, your bras are going to change forever. Because uh, when you tell someone that you work for a retailer at a bra, uh, you get an incredibly engaged response. People say, oh, I'm so glad I met you because last Tuesday I bought this. Or have you thought about doing that? Or, you know, in my local store, I wish you'd do that. People are incredibly engaged and they want to talk about it. So if you love that when you go to a bra, uh, then you'll fit well within retail. If you uh, find that frustrating and you want your life more compartmentalized, uh, then it's probably not for you. For me, uh, you know, I came to pick and pay. I was expecting it to be a short thing while I found something entrepreneurial to do. And I really got seduced by the potential for impact. You know, at that stage, we had 12 million transactions a week. There's a real tangible sense in which if you do your job well, you make the lives of all your millions and millions of customers better. And if you do it badly, their lives are worse. So there's a tremendous opportunity for impact uh, that you have when you work for a scale retailer that you get in very few places. I think, you know, you can get that kind of impact in government, but then it's really hard to make change. You can get that kind of impact in education, but then you maybe find out in 20 years whether you had an impact or not. Whereas retail, you have this enormous impact uh, across the whole country and you find out the next morning, you know, customers vote every single day with their wallet. Mm -hmm. They choose where they spend their money. So retail is the ultimate democracy. You get to see uh, who people are choosing, where they're going to, and you get to find that out at 6 a.m. when you see the sales numbers. So there's an incredibly strong feedback loop that lets you know, are we serving South Africa? Are they choosing us? And that's an incredibly energizing place to be. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's that real life, you know, like you said, the impact, you've got that instant gratification almost, you know, from this is what I did and this is the immediate result. Well, it's it's an instant opportunity for learning. So if you're open to hear the messages that are are being sent, you can see that. And it's happening at scale. So it's really important to have an incredibly analytical approach to make sure that you're distilling what's going on. At the same time, each experience in the store, each anecdote is a truth as well. So you've got to make sure that the individual anecdotes don't get lost in the averages of the analytics that are coming out. So it's incredibly energizing. If you're curious and you, you want to learn you have an opportunity to learn everywhere because the customer is telling you every single day what you did well and what you could have done better yeah yeah and i mean in an environment which from the way you describe it it seems almost fickle in the sense that you know you, you can see immediately how the customer is changing um, or what their immediate needs are what what is the implication you know for this uh, on strategy how how rigid can you be in the strategy that you're following as a retailer? Yeah, look, I think that's a, that's a big question. A lot, lots of people talk about strategy. And uh, for me, strategy is very simple. It's a framework I saw from uh, uh, Richard Rummelt in his book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. And he would say, good strategy is just three things. It's a thorough understanding of the context you're in. It's a clear plan to win given your strengths in the context and it's a series of actions that that follow that plan and i think that's uh, that's the beauty of retail it's it's really simple we have to deliver for customers what will delight them what they want and we have to work out how to afford uh, to do that now 
to do that every day consistently at 2 million transactions a day, that's a really challenging, challenging thing to do. It's a challenging thing to do through processes and scale. It's challenging to have the imagination to think of things uh, that will really delight customers. And it's challenging to work out how you run a business that can afford to delight customers in that, that way. So for me, the strategic question really comes down to that. How will we get customers to choose us? And then how will we afford to give customers those those things that they clearly want or may not even know they want yet, but if we offer them to them, it will delight them? Yeah, absolutely. So the customer focus um, really remains key when you're in retail. And, you know, how would you say an FMCG retailer is, uh, you know, I don't want to say the customer perspective, but how would the, the strategy for, the, for an FMCG retailer where you're moving stock all the time Gather, you know, to a clothing retailer, for example, or general merchandise. Well, I'm clearly a little bit uh, biased here um, because uh, I spent 12 years uh, uh, in a in a grocer. Uh, the thing I love about grocery retail is you do get big trends. You do get a long arc of history. The move towards meat free, the move towards organic, the move towards more sustainable products. But you also get a customer desires move slowly enough so that you're really able to use the data to dig into what customers are doing and, and how they're changing. I think there are similar challenges in clothing retail about really being focused to, uh, into the next season and knowing what uh, customers are going to want there and in general merchandise as well. But for me, the grocery retail sector, or FMCG as you call it, is such an interesting mix of these large macro trends going and this uh, market moving slow enough that if you're there to listen, there are a million whispers telling you what customers want more of. Mm, and it's up to you to listen, but obviously also to efficiently listen, I suppose. Well, to listen and I think to try. I think what you realize pretty soon is that any intelligent person can kill any idea on a whiteboard. And so it's having the courage to say, uh, which are the reversible decisions? How can we try them? How can we test this? How can we give customers the opportunity to really vote with their wallets and with their feet? And let's put it out there and let's learn from customers. Otherwise, you, every good idea, you can think of a, a reason why it might be a bad idea. So the opportunity for experimentation when you've got thousands of stores, millions of customers, tens of thousands of product, it really gives you an incredible ability to be imaginative uh, and experiment and then be analytical in understanding what's really working. I hear you. And are there any examples that you can um, discuss and, uh, you know, unpack with us perhaps of some of your learnings in terms of those times when you jumped in and tried and either succeeded or failed dismally? Yeah, we've had so many over the over the years. You know, we've made major changes to our, our loyalty program and really seeing the shift to personalization there and seeing customers respond uh, with that behavior uh, was incredible. I've also uh, been part of campaigns that uh, uh, we thought would be really good and then uh, weren't good. You know, we had a great campaign called Scratch and Win. I don't know if you're a pick and pay shopper, you might remember Scratch and Win uh, back Ooh. in the day. Uh, and uh, we had just done a brilliant free grocery and that had worked uh, incredibly well so we were quickly trying to spin up an idea and myself and the team we thought wouldn't scratch cards be brilliant where you get to s scratch the cards and uh, we made sure that uh, you were winning far more often than you were winning free shopping in store but 
as that hit the store, the visceral experience for customers of scratching and seeing no prize for 10 tickets in a row, 20 tickets in a row, uh, even though you know the, the win ratio was on paper still good. It was yeah. just a, a, we only knew when it was out there that it was a, a terrible experience for customers. And so really, it, you know, it was, it was my learning on the incredibly engaging nature of scratch and win, but the, the importance of then uh, delivering that and making sure that, that lots of people uh, did win on that. And you, even the communication, you know, often in these, in these things, you can't remember uh, exactly where the idea came from. Unfortunately, I can remember exactly that this one was my fault. We were thinking about what to put on the ticket if you didn't win a prize. And so the suggestion was something like, sorry, please try again. And I thought, oh, if you get 10 of those tickets in a row, that won't feel so nice. Why don't we just say something generic like no prize? And that uh, decision came back to haunt me when my daughter put 20 scratch and win tickets on my desk at home that all said no prize, no prize, no prize. Uh, uh, But it was an incredible opportunity because we learned, hey, this is engaging. We got the customer engagement, but we weren't able to then meet their expectations on on, uh, how to win. And so we incorporated that. We managed to save that campaign by offering a whole lot of other uh, loyalty vouchers on, on Smart Shopper, getting on the radio, talking to customers uh, about it. Um, but I certainly worked for, walked with the limp for a little bit after that. Mm. But it was, yeah, just a fantastic way of learning actually how you, you be compelling for customers, but the importance of, of keeping that promise through and delivering on the expectations. Yeah. And I mean, it's that typical human behavior, you know, you, you want this, being exposed to constant disappointment, <laughs> you know, you are going to, you are going to feel negative. Um, but yeah, there's only one way to know. You need to jump in and try. Um, you know, yeah. you can do all the market research in the world sometimes. There's just no way you're going to know. And, and it is so thrilling when, when you get it right. So for my, my last year at Pick and Pay, one of the things I was doing is we had just acquired this great business called Bottles. Uh, this business had pivoted in the start of, of COVID from being liquor delivery into grocery delivery. They had grown really fast. They had been acquired by Pick and Pay, uh, but weren't really integrated within the, the core team. And with the existing online team, with the Bottles team, we really had a think about what we would need to do uh, to deliver for customers, worked hard with our stores, worked hard with our uh, buying teams all to bring together an offer, and then relaunched that uh, uh, last year. And, and really an incredible uh, growth that, that came from what's now the ASAP service as we were able to hit on the nose what customers were looking for and really deliver that value, that convenience that, uh, that they were asking for and the full pick and pay uh, in the easiest way. And so I think that's a rewarding part about retail, that you can conceive of it, you can test it. Uh, if you get it wrong, you know fast and you can correct it. And if you get it right, uh, you just get the joy of seeing your friends and family using uh, something that you created. Mm. No, um, I, I love the fact that, you know, you get this instant um, feedback. With regard to the ASAP service, and, you know, we, we obviously also have Checker 6060 and, and all of that, what do you think is the market drive? Why is it so important to have your groceries at your door within an hour? You know, what is the drive? Yeah, well, you're seeing this dynamic all around the world. I don't think mm. it's every shopping mission, but for certain shopping missions, nothing beats easy. You know, we've had convenience shops close to where we live and delivery within one hour of your groceries at the same price as they cost in the grocery store is really, really easy. Now, what we've seen around the world is people do it in 15 minutes. And I think that's another step change. That is 
that is crazy easy where you you know you haven't finished making the tea since you ordered uh, the milk and then uh, the doorbell rings and and that comes in but i think it's one shopping mission among among many shopping missions but i think that's seeing what customers value they always value good prices good value i think uh, raymond ackman used to quote bernardo trujillo which said uh, poor people need low prices rich people love them and my experience is that all of south africa really loves a deal we're an incredibly promotional market so whatever you're doing you have to give great value but if you can make it really easy if you can have an intuitive app if you can have it arrive at the door then that fits a lot of people's lifestyles and how they're living and that's what we've seen we've seen uh, incredible customer take up on that and it's been because of how well it uh, meets uh, customers needs yeah and I wonder, I mean, there's, there's definitely also a component to, because in a research that we recently did on, on Omnichannel, also we, we did a research report on Omnichannel about the low-income consumers mm. perspective. And, um, you know, there's a great fear about fresh goods, for example, going off, et cetera. So I think, you know, particularly um, great. But, yeah, there also seems to be a bit of a fear in terms of the delivery not arriving or not being home. So, yeah, I mean, there's many elements that make it attractive. I just, you know, it's interesting that this, that this took off so quickly. Oh, I think there's going to be uh, so much interesting movement still in this space. You talk about the less affluent customer. I think we haven't even seen the start of what e-commerce can do for the least affluent in, in South Africa. Just the ability to, to deliver for them and really to optimize for them. They are time scarce, they are resource scarce, and e-commerce can solve some of those problems. And we see community retail in China, we see other models around the world that I think can be re- really relevant for, for South Africans. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's really that innovation aspect, um, you know, that, that also comes into play, it being creative in, you know, in problem solving. And I think a lot of the challenges, you know, from your low income consumers is exactly what you said, they are time poor because a lot of time is being spent on traveling to and from work. So also being incredibly, um, you know, tired. But, you know, another challenge is also the fact that, you know, delivery location isn't always convenient to access. And, you know, it might not be clearly marked address or or wherever where they might live. And, um, yeah, you see innovations. Um, so, for example, I sat on the um, Youth Brand Awards um, this year, the first ever Youth Brand Awards that took place, um, and I judged the services category. And there was uh, the winner in that particular category was a company that I thought, uh, you know, is, is doing such a great job, and they called that Delivery Plus Speed, and they um, started a delivery service in the township market. Um, and that is, you know, such a great a great initiative um, because it just provides that additional access that this market actually doesn't, you know, have at this stage. Exactly. 100%. Exactly. It, it provides access. I mean, one of the there's a great uh, startup uh, company in called Yebel Fresh that's doing a brilliant job uh, delivering uh, groceries basically online, but through WhatsApp and, and online into the uh, emerging market or into the less affluent sectors. I, I think. There are going to be companies that that solve this issue, and they're going to solve it using technology, using deep customer understanding. And like you say, I think there there are issues with it. There are issues of brand trust. Uh, there are issues of reliability. Uh, but there is absolutely an opportunity for that. And uh, you know, there's on innovation. I'd always go to Clayton Christensen. He's uh, brilliantly described the innovators dilemma and why large companies sometimes struggle with this. And he would say, if you're looking to grow a business, always target non-consumption. You know, before you try and be a better 60-60 than 60-60, why not uh, 
try and uh, sell e-commerce groceries to the people who 6060 doesn't work for. And I think they're going to be a whole lot of startups. And I suspect the uh, incumbent retailers as well that really open up new channels in, in serving the emerging market. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, in terms of your experience in working with uh, the omni-channel perspective, so how would you describe an omni-channel approach uh, specifically in a retail context? What is it that you were aiming for to, to achieve this seamless integration? What did your customer want? What did they look like? And how did you go about this? <laughs> there, there are a lot of big questions in there, Beate. I would say that uh, there's a pretty big question that every retailer needs to ask themselves about, about omni-channel. You know, omni-channel is a word that people love to use. The best definition I've heard is actually by Andrew Smith, one of the founders of, of Yappy Chef, and they had physical stores, but they were traditionally an e-commerce retailer. And he said, uh, omni-channel means your stores are better because you have an online shop and your online shop is better because you have stores. And I think that's a pretty, pretty pure definition. Mm. The assumption that people make for omni-channel is they make the assumption that it should be a completely seamless experience for the customer between using any of the channels, whether they're online or WhatsApp ordering or uh, you know ship ordering or in-store shopping. And all other things being equal, that is great. It's wonderful to be able to have a completely seamless uh, experience like that. But in reality, there are always big trade-offs to be made in terms of speed. So if you want to offer a seamless service, it means you have to deeply integrate with the existing uh, technology platforms. And that's going to mean you move much slower. It's mean, going to mean you can't do as many customer experiments as you'd want to do. So I think there's an, a really important uh, decision you need to make about what are the key experiences for the customer that need to be consistent? Is it going to be pricing? Is it going to be the fact that we know who you are in both so your, your loyalty data and all your, your aspects of loyalty come through in both? But I don't think it can just be a straight assumption that in every situation uh, you should be completely seamless uh, between it because what you really want to do is you want to be moving fast and learning fast and to do that you have to be putting things in front of the customers and see how they vote and so uh, that's always how I've thought about online I've and omni-channel I've thought about how do we get where customers are going how do we deliver them an incredible experience across all the channels and then we can work out a name for it later but if we're delighting the customer the name won't matter yeah Exactly. I just sometimes wonder, you know, what is the implications of not having a seamless experience for the brand perception? And why I'm asking this is against the background of our recent report showed that people made a lot of mention of the fact that the online store is so clean and fresh and crisp. The way that the food is portrayed on it is so beautiful. And the customer service is actually uh, interpreted to be better in the online. Whereas when you go into the store, you know, the, the avocado doesn't look half as pretty as it did online. <laughs> and you also struggle to get someone on the floor to actually help you. Mm. Look, I think it's it's very, very important. You know, a brand is a promise. It's a promise that things go, will go well. It's a promise that things won't go badly. And that promise is communicated a little bit by advertising, but it's really communicated by everything you do, everything you do in store, everything you do through your delivery partners, everything you the customer feels uh, when they think about your your brand. So I think it's hugely important to meet expectations, but it's also useful to understand that customers' expectations are different in different areas. So a customer's expectation about how fast is fast differs in different categories, and it gets reset. It's ever notching up. You know, South, South Africans now expect their uh, groceries to be delivered in under an hour 
if they uh, order it from any of the, the major supermarkets. And that isn't something that exists in many other countries. So I think it's hugely important. But you need to understand by channel what customers expect. You know, customers in South Africa are used to paying more in a garage forecourt than they are in a large supermarket. So you wouldn't be breaching customer trust if your prices were a little bit more in a garage forecourt than they would be in a hypermarket. But you would absolutely be breaching trust if your name was on the door of that garage forecourt and the fresh wasn't as good as it was in all of your supermarkets. So I think you really have to understand that your brand is a promise. Uh, You're communicating it through everything you do, and you need to understand by channel what the customer's expectations are and deliver on those expectations in the channel. Yeah, definitely. And then in terms of if we move over to to just some general um, advice that you would like to give to retailers in order to succeed for the future, what do you think retailers should be doing strategically, I don't know, research-wise, what should retailers be doing? Wow. No, it's hard to be in a a position to offer the retailers uh, advice. I think we have great (laughs) retailers here in South Africa. I think uh, the retailers have really understood their customers. They're really going after delivering for those customers. And the big question for me is going to be, can they invent the future of retail? Or is that going to come from outside the the big retailers? The quote I love on this topic is, Will the incumbent get innovation before the disruptor gets distribution? So the large retailers, they have all of the data, they have the customer trust, they have the distribution network, they have every right to invent the future. But it's hard to do it because it's very likely that the future ways of retail are going to erode markets, are going to be awkward for the structures to do. It's very hard to drive big innovation from within a a large corporate, whereas they're thousands and thousands of startups looking at uh, the retail sector and saying, hey, we think we could sell things pretty well. We're going to have a go at it. It's very hard for them to get to scale, but it's very easy for them to be customer focused and to innovate. And the person who works out what customers want and how to afford to give it to them, they're going to be the ones that customers choose. That is the beauty and the purity of retail. You give customers something they want, and they gladly receive it, and they give you their money. And so it's wonderfully simple to describe. It's why everyone has an opinion on retail, but it's incredibly hard to do well at scale at a consistently high standard. And so that is the beauty, the challenge, the pain, and the wonder of retail. Mm. Absolutely. And tell me, in terms of, you know, the COVID experience, what can you tell us about? Because we all, you know, we were just thankful that, you know, our retailer, the retailers were open to buy food and it was like a, a shopping trip, you know, to be able to go out. <laughs> but, you know, what was going on behind the scenes? You know, what was it like for the retailer? It's almost hard to think back to those early days. How how long was lockdown going to be? 21 days or tw- something like that, 28 yeah. days. Yeah. You know, we were uh, we were disrupted like everyone else in South Africa. We were spinning trying to work out what it all meant. Uh, but pretty quickly we worked out that while everyone was impaired and locked down, w- there was something that we could do. And so that was incredibly energizing. We managed to strip away 
everything that wasn't important and really focus on the role we could play in South Africa, which was making sure that we had open stores that were fully stocked, helping customers to understand that they needn't panic buy and shout out to King James for the incredible work they did uh, on don't panic buy and and uh, really helping customers to emotionally engage with, with the idea that there is going to be food on the, on the shelves. And then we focused all our communication energy. I was running marketing at the time on working out how do we let customers know how to be safe? How do we make sure our colleagues in stores are safe? What do we need to install at stores? We uh, bought, uh, you know, kilometers and kilometers of tape so we could mark out 1.5 meter distances in stores. We were trying to think imaginatively of how we could serve South Africa. So we started having a special queue for key workers. You know, we had the idea one afternoon and by the next morning, it was live in every store. We just were very quick at, at making whatever we could uh, think of uh, to serve South Africa in that time work. We did uh, something for old age pensioners where we opened early on a Wednesday. So really working very, very hard to try and keep our stores open, safe for, for our colleagues, and really keep the stock uh, full on the shelf so that we could serve South Africa. And what it felt like on the inside is we were working long days. Uh, we were trying to do things very, very fast. We were very, very focused. But it was tr- it felt like a tremendous honor and a privilege to be able to serve South Africa and serve our customers in that way. Yeah, amazing. And I must tell you, I, I've been so impressed by South African retailers all around in terms of how quickly they have, you know, adapted and, you know, the sanitizers are up and the this and the that. And, you know, it, it really just, yeah, was actually amazing how fast everyone just got on board and did it. And I think that is. Yeah. And what that looks like from the inside is it looks like a total reordering of the way we do things. And so we had all of the key decision makers on calls every day. Uh, many teams had calls immediately after that. It was all calls because in one day we all went to completely work from home like everyone else. So we were trying to manage the business through our biggest crisis ever while moving to completely uh, work from home. And it meant that we made decisions very fast. We made sure we were contactable. We made sure that we executed well. When the world was changing, there were days where we were like, oh, you can sell these shoes, but not these kind of shoes, or you can sell a heater, but not a uh, burner. And so really reacting fast, making sure that uh, uh, we were on top of what was happening, making sure we were supporting our stores and our colleagues in stores. You know, Everyone else was st- being told to stay home because it was incredibly dangerous to go out. And our colleagues in stores were being asked to put on a mask and go and serve customers. So we, we were making sure that we could give them all the support they need in terms of information, in terms of perspex screens, in terms of masks, and in, in terms of customer communication so that they could manage customers through, help them to get in and out really fast, and help them to uh, get their groceries safely, which we felt was our role in the crisis. You know, I must say, it's, for me, it's like a big shout out um, you know, to, to all the retail employees during that period. I mean, Absolutely. It, is, it, is, it was such a stressful time, um, and just you know, for them having ability to, to stand up in the morning and to say, I'm going in here, I could potentially also get COVID and, you know, just for being so incredibly brave. And and Beata, the risk risk was real. So, you know, it's, uh, we had colleagues who contracted COVID and passed away. And so in mm-hmm. our morning crisis meeting, uh, when that did happen, uh, we took a minute's silence. We, none of that ever became a statistic to us. You know, we knew the people, we knew them by name, and we acknowledged the service that they had given to our customers and, and to South Africa. So, yeah, people 
put their they literally put their bodies on the line to serve South Africa and I'm incredibly proud about how our retail industry and especially our store colleagues responded to the crisis yeah I think hearing that you know just gives that absolute flashback of you know the days where we had so many friends colleagues that you know, there's lots of people it was it was actually yeah. a really bad time I think we've you know, we've moved on so quickly um, that we, we didn't actually reflect properly on, on what we were confronted with um, during that time. You know, this is so desperate to, to keep the show going um, at the end of the day. John, thank you for sharing your experience and knowledge with us today. This is really, really insightful um, and we learned a lot. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show, Beata, and thank you for everything you're doing for the retail industry. I think it's great to have a podcast like this. You've got you know, some really interesting guests on, and I've been enjoying listening. You've had me as well, so hopefully that's a little bit interesting to some people. And I, I love it. To those people listening out there, I think you should really consider uh, a career in retail. It's an opportunity to make an enormous difference in South Africa, and we need clever people to serve our customers. And to our listeners, I just want to remind you to keep an eye and an ear out for more of our podcast, where we bring you conversations aimed at improving our collective knowledge of everything wholesale and retail, so that we can work together to build and advance the retail industry. Thank you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.